Welcome to Wine and Film, a perfect pairing. I'm film critic Gary Kogel, and this week Matt Damon has only 37 lines of dialogue and takes no prisoners in the new Jason Bourne film. It's directed by the great Paul Greengrass. Plus, after finally seeing the new Star Trek film, I'm actually pleased, and I'll explain why. And I'm wine expert Haley Hamilton Cogill. I'm just back from the Pacific Northwest, and you say Matt Damon only has 37 lines of dialogue, yet made $25 million for the new Jason Bourne film. So today I'm going to pair a wine that says so much without saying anything at all, the noblest white variety, Riesling. 37 lines of dialogue and $25 million. Raise your hand if you want that job. I want that job. Just raise your hand. (laughs) Which sounds like a pro athlete every once in a while, making so much money for so little time like a baseball pitcher. But this is even more. Listen, I think this is the fifth uh, Jason Bourne film, the fourth for him, because wasn't Jeremy Jeremy Renner? Renner. Yeah. Yeah. And I kind of liked that film. I didn't hate that film. I didn't think it was on the level of maybe some of the early Jason Bourne films. But all of a sudden, this one comes along, and it's directed by Paul Greengrass. And Greengrass, uh, I think it's directed two of the Jason Bourne films. He also did United 91, which was— 93. United 93, mm-hmm. that really great film about the terrific tragedy of 9-11. And also Captain Phillips. This guy, oh, I didn't know he did. This guy Captain makes Phillips. good movies, yeah, and does. he's British, and he's been around a while. So this one has Matt Damon, who— and I don't want to give away the whole plot, but in the opening scene, he's been gone for quite a while, and he's been way undercover, and he's beaten people up for a living. I mean, I will say, for 37 lines, he is all in. I mean, he doesn't say a lot during the film, right. but he certainly is present. It's not like he just you know was in the first scene and he's out. He is, he is in it. And what he doesn't say in dialogue, he says with his fist. Absolutely. Because this is all about, all about <laughs> taking somebody down because they're all trying to take him down. And then you have you have Tommy Lee, Tommy Lee Jones, the great Texas actor, Oscar winner, every farmhouse, hen house, outhouse. <laughs> For the fugitive? Yeah. <laughs> every time I see him, I think of him just he's going to run through his lift, and he's always looking for somebody. So he's the head of the, what, the... The FBI, the FBI in this, and and he's going, and he's a bad guy. I mean, I, I you can give this up right away. The the government are not good. They are not good people in this movie, and they they're generally not good people in all of the Bourne films. But I think they're particularly bad and nasty in this one. Of course, they're trying to bring him and find him and bring him in, and they're really trying to kill him. Is what they're trying to do. And then you have also uh, Julia Stiles is back in the film, and I've always liked her because she's kind of gone born. Uh huh. She's gone. Oh yeah. She's gone rogue and she's gone born. She's in the system, but she's trying to help him. And uh, and that's all I'm going to say because <laughs> there. This movie is full of movie stars. Alicia Vikander. Vikander yeah. yeah. The Danish girl that got Oscar nominated. Yeah. yeah, and she she's real somber in this film. She barely smiles, and she's got something going on too. But she works for Tom Lee Jones, and then the bad guy, the asset. Mm-hmm. I don't think he has a name. I think his name is Asset. I, I think it's <laughs> yes. That was his credit. Is is the asset? Get asset on the phone, which almost sounds dirty. Uh, is the bad guy trying to kill him? He's the hitman, and and of course you're you're going to wait for the showdown between the asset and and and, and J- born and born. So, um, but it's Vincent Cassell who who I love. He I love was, Vincent Cassell. Exactly. He's he's he plays a bad guy well. So, is this in the grand scheme of all of the um, Jason Bourne films? Is this in the middle? Probably. I don't think it's at the bottom. I don't think it's at the it's top. It's not at the top, but. But it was a good film. I think that, and I don't know if you're going to get a little bit into it. It did yeah. seem like there was a lot of of needless destruction, just for the sake of 
destructing things. There's Almost so like, much there... collateral damage in this movie, and not not like a Superman movie, right. but in a, they're trying they're more realistic. And so when they go go down the strip of Vegas and just take out. 200 cars? But that was, Somebody's driving every one of those cars has a driver in it. And that was the weird thing, though, because they they did completely destroy the Vegas Strip yeah. cars-wise, but it was also somewhat unrealistic in that if anyone's been to Vegas, there wasn't a person on the street. And that's, you know, it's kind of like shooting a, a scene in New York and not seeing any people on the street. Right. You, you can't have—so— I Plus, appreciate them not yes. like driving through people because that would be a little too tragic to well, watch. Well, they plow through a bunch of one-armed bandits too. They uh, uh, they plow through a bunch of those uh, shouldn't laugh. slot machines, and there's nobody playing. Them. Yeah, yeah. And when is when does that happen in Vegas? Well, that would probably. It's a very expensive movie, and I'm going to say the last thirty minutes is nonstop violence, and it's kind of disturbing and kind of odd. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm going to leave it at that. That it's I, very shaky. I thought it well. It's the whole Paul Greengrass is very shaky cam in his movies, but. And that kind of bothered me. So I think it's kind of in the middle of the Bourne films. I think it's a good film and never a great film. But I'm kind of troubled by the violence. And when they shoot cops in this film because of what's going on in our country, it's – I know it's just a movie, but it, now you feel bad when mm-hmm. you see that. Mm-hmm. When they shoot cops in this movie, just carelessly, just take them out, stab them, kill them, whatever. It really leaves me with a bad taste in my mouth. Yeah. But I want a good taste in my mouth. Well, and that's what's so interesting. So we were both up in in Seattle last week, um, and I was attending the fifth annual Riesling Rendezvous with Riesling producers from all over the world. It was this year. It was hosted by Chateau Saint Michel in Woodenville in Seattle, Washington. Um, it's included wineries from from Germany, from Australia, from Austria, from Alsace, from Michigan and Okanagan and Oregon and New York and New Zealand. And um, I I will say this about Riesling because I almost think that that this Riesling is a darling in the Psalm community. Um, Winemakers, wine uh, aficionados, wine um, sommeliers love Riesling because it is such a, a versatile, beautiful, Grape variety, but I think it, it, some people like anyone who says I don't drink Riesling because they think it's sweet is missing out on this very elegant, very fragrant, interesting, and, and completely delicious wines. And I, and I think the best, one of the best things I heard last week was a comment from, from one of the, the winemakers that says, We as consumers, we talk dry, yet we drink sweet. And if you think about it, that that is a, a a large major a large majority of Americans. It's it's why Coca Cola is so popular. It's why frozen margaritas are so popular. It's why every frozen cocktail is so popular. Wow. I mean, it's even why people like bourbon or scotch because they want that kind of caramelized toffee toasted orange kind of flavor that you find from from a nicely aged um, kind of spirit like that. So dry and sweet can go together. Well, and I think that this I. I've done a lot of training in my years. I, I, we certainly do drink a lot of wine, and and I I certainly understand. I th- I thought I knew a lot about Riesling going into this, just to just to realize <laughs> that I don't know a lot at all. It's it, it, the the complexities in this variety completely have me have me a little all over the place. So I think I'd like to get into a little bit more of that. 
when we come back. Yeah, let's do that. When we come back, uh, a little look at uh, also another movie called Star Trek Beyond. It was a leader at the box office this past weekend. And since we've both seen the film, we have some obvious opinions of Spock and Kirk and the crew of the Enterprise. And we have a little bit more to say about Riesling, and we'll be right back. And we are back on A Perfect Pairing. We talked about Riesling coming out into the break, and I, I have a question about Riesling because I don't love Riesling, and I'm trying to figure that out. I think it's because I don't know enough about it. It's probably, to me, I, I have less information about Riesling than any any varietal, anyone. I think it's something that we in the past haven't typically just been drinking a lot of, and and now I'm kind of sad for that because the nuances that that I've found over the past few years, and it does seem that Riesling has definitely had an absurgence in the past few years of 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 more and more people really seeking it out and understanding it. Um, it's it's one wine of of every variety I think that's out there. At least in the white wine world, I, I think maybe Pinot Noir for the red wine world. But I think in the white wine world, a, a Riesling will truly pick up on the characteristics of the vineyard more so than than a lot of of different varieties. So the soil type that these Rieslings grow in, whether it be limestone or slate, or or chalk or clay. Um, will will influence the flavors of this wine so much, and 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 it is something that that you can have lots of lime and 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 very citrusy notes that could then go to the other end of the spectrum with this kind of tropical pineapple and 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 st- apricot stone fruit and and always though with this very very linear line of acidity because it's one of the highest acid grapes that's out there. And so that's why there's often this this percentage of residual sugar that is left in the wine. And I think that when when some people see that a wine has residual sugar in it, then they think that that's just going to be sweet. But I also found it really interesting that a lot of these different wines that might have had high residual sugar, if they had a high acid percentage, they didn't taste, you didn't get as much of a kind of juiciness and and uh, a sweetness that you might have expected. It was, it, I, I'm still kind of trying to wrap my head around exactly how to write about this, but I do want to throw out a couple great ones that yeah. we found that that I really, um, I'm excited about and if if say you have a palate that you don't even want to think about the residual sugar, you know that you would never ever ever drink that wine. Then I'm I'm kind of sad because I think these the wines that do have a little bit more residual sugar also have more um, character and complexity. Often they might have um, I think the nuances can be a little bit more um, outspoken, but. Very, very clean, very, very crisp. Um, Clare Valley and Eden Valley in Australia. Um, Jim Berry Wines was one that I I found that I really, really enjoyed, as well as Pikes from Western Australia. Um, organic and sustainable Franklin Estate. Um, just it's Western Australia, so um, very, very kind of on the their vineyards are in basically the absolute middle of nowhere. Um, the dry farmed, there's there's very little rain, but the the ripeness of the fruit 
is very, very uh, outspoken and and juicy and has great that great mineral um, character that you look for, but also this just really, really kind of mango and pineapple, really, really lovely wines from them. Um, throw a few out also from from you know Chateau Saint Michel was our host there. Um, they've they've partnered through the last many years with Dr. Lucen, who was the kind of co-host um, of this particular event. Um, Lucen is German. Um, his Ernst Lucen, um, Mosel, German Riesling, as well as Robert Weil, um, that's from the Rheingau. Both of them, um, the Rheingau has so much slate and quartz and sandstone and granite that you get that kind of minerality in that in the flavor profile that just becomes so pronounced and so beautiful. And the Mosul is so kind of that linear, crisp, very clean, really, really beautiful wines. And, and I will say a German label can be very daunting. So if you know that you want a dry style wine, just look for the word trocken because that trocken. Trocken, <laughs> yes. not trocken. Because that okay. that basically means dry. But beautiful wines, and you tried several. I think yeah, that you enjoyed. I, I, I found some that just knocked my socks off. I always thought they were sweet, and I didn't like a lot of the really sweet ones. Mm-hmm. And then I'd find a real dry one and think that's a really complicated wine. Well, and even the sweet ones, though, if you think about pairing that with some spicy Thai food yeah. or spicy, I think somebody said at one point anything that you'd, you'd squeeze a lime on would go great with riesling. Yeah. So Mexican food, um, Thai food, sushi. Um, even, but then, you know, foie gras with with a sweeter one or an aged cheese or smoked salmon. I think the the pairing potential is great. And the alcohol levels are off, often much lower. So they're just perfect food wines. I'm complete. I'm on board. Yeah. I get it. I'm, I get why people are drinking Riesling. And now I'm just excited to continue to to find great ones that I love. It's just fun to go to a Riesling conference with you. <laughs> so we get out of the Riesling conference and yes. we go see Star Trek. Yes. Star Trek Beyond, which should be Star Trek Inward. It's not Beyond. It's all about relationships. It's a very inward film. It's not a big outward film. It's. I thought it was about relationships. It's the most diverse Mainstream movie. I think the I think uh, the last Star Wars film got it, and I think uh, this Star Trek Beyond uh, Star Trek Beyond gets it. I'm almost going to say it's a cliche, but uh, all white is not right. It really <laughs> it, it's getting to the point where we've we've got a th- these are filmmakers who are thinking about this. Mm-hmm. These are characters that are all interchangeable, no matter what ethnic mm-hmm. or really gender they are. Anybody can command that ship. Yeah. I mean, we love Kirk and Spock. And and is it the best of all the Star Trek movies? I don't think so. But I, but but I think what J.J. Abrams and now, you know, um, getting the director of Fast and Furious, uh, Jeremy Lin, involved in this makes it really, really, really interesting. So I I I, I look at the Star Trek movie and and I like it a lot. And I've kind of smiled because it felt like an old fashioned episode. Mm-hmm. I felt mm-hmm. like I was watching the old TV series, but honoring kind of the new cast. And the new people. I'm still all in. It made $59 million. It's not a big runaway hit, but it's a big hit, and it should do well. And it's a friendly film. It's, I, I, I really like the film. Well, I thought it was also, and I don't know if it's, you know, it's been out for a bit now, but I found it, I found it just so wonderful that basically the, the Enterprise is going into uncharted territory basically because they've they've gotten a call from someone who's in distress and and there no questions asked the the only ship that can handle this kind of uncharted territory and they go without without question there's their this is their this is their duty this is what they signed up for and 
obviously then things turn very bad for them. But um, but it was kind of just such a, a, a wonderful homage to, you know, this is when when somebody calls, we go. When 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 asked, go and do the go and do your duty. And and it is. And it's also really nice to see that that everything kind of comes full circle, which it does come really full nice. circle. I I I just think like uh, when um, um, the James Bond films got stale and Star Star Trek got very stale. Mm-hmm. That now they're uh, with now with this cast and different directors and kind of some youth to it. Mm-hmm. That they make more sense to me. Well, the cast is great, but I am going to say it's just nice to see Hollywood get diversity in the right sense. They're not forcing it. It just kind of works into the fabric of all of this. And one of the characters is gay, mm-hmm. and they don't push it in your face. It's very subtle. And it's kind of cool the way they do it in the yeah. film. They don't comment on it. They just show a, a, a brief scene of a reunion. Well, and it's also, I think, that we've gotten into the relationship side with Spock. Mm-hmm. But now it's actually kind of showing, okay, these people actually have relationships with with people on the ground also. Or in the, what's, what is it called? the Where do they live? Oh, in their, in their what do you mean, on their, in their ship? No, in, 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 at home. Oh, I don't. I have What's no, the planet that they live? On? Oh, I don't. I, <laughs> Ooh, I, I don't know. I have Star no Trek idea. They're history. always in space. No, the, but where do they take off from? Where's home? Earth. It's not Earth. No, though. It's they're, not. they're like out in there. It's like they're they're on a vessel. Let's in. take a break and figure this out. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be back with some questions for us for each other when wine and film a perfect pairing continues. Welcome back to A Perfect Pairing, and uh, we're still having this discussion about, in Star Trek, where they're based or where they live out in outer space. It looks like a giant globe with a gerbil wheel in the middle of it, but there's it's a city. But and, we And I will just say— And they're rebuilding the Enterprise, and they're it, doing all kinds it's of things. Where, it's, where, it's where all the humans live. It's right. where all the people live. And so, for all the Trekkies, if we have any Trekkies out there that are listening to us, please tweet Gary at Gary Cogill and tell him what this place is called. Oh, yeah. It's <laughs> going gonna, gonna to come flying. We'll call it Freedom Land yeah, for now. That sounds good. And it's going to get blown. Okay, I have a Riesling question because uh, the use of the word petrol comes out in Riesling a lot. And I'm I'm very conflicted and complicated. I find Riesling complicated, and I think that's the challenge for me. The more I know about it, the more I appreciate it, which is, I think, true. And sometimes if I just know it right away, like an average film, if, if it doesn't challenge me, it's it goes by the wayside. Right. I know a lot about rosé right away. Yeah, I don't know a lot about rendered. Riesling right away, and I think that's a good thing, correctly. And also, can you just explain the petrol taste? Well, and I think that over the years, what some people want to describe as petrol is actually a lot of that minerality because you get this very kind of stone, crushed stone, wet stone, um, metallic sometimes kind of flavor and aroma from a very young Riesling. Over the years, sometimes more with like an aged Riesling than this kind of gassier petrol or linden note will will kind of come out in the wine. Gas and oil are off-putting to me. Well, just that I understand, but just then 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 drink a young Riesling. <laughs> but I get what you're saying now because it's really minerality. It it is. It's this very um and and it's such a clean flavor, but but it it is something that's there, but there's also white flower and citrus flower right. and and all of this great fruit 
that not grapefruit, great fruit. Sometimes yeah. grapefruit, but <laughs> that makes my lips through. pucker, and so does petrol. The sound of the taste of petrol. But now I know what it is because I uh, that was a for lack of being able to define it. Right. And minerality says everything to me. Yeah. I'm really tasting the minerals and the rocks and and you, I mean it, everything you, in the it soil. It tastes like the terroir, which. Yeah. To find a wine that that can really do that and and isn't masked by by the tools that a winemaker can play with is just so exciting. And hanging out with all the Riesling winemakers, they all had Riesling shirts on, <laughs> and they're all Riesling geeks. And it was I was so that was so cool. Yeah, because they're devoted. It's I mean they're like Trekkies. It's they're a, devoted. It's a beautiful, beautiful wine. Yeah. Okay, I want to ask right. you a question because yeah. I know. Yeah that recently somebody that you admired a lot passed yeah. away. And I'm going to say that she's almost like a singing in the rain kind of actress. Um, Marnie Nixon, correct? Right. And I say singing in the rain because she was basically an uncredited singer for some of the best names in Hollywood and some of the greatest films of Hollywood. That's a great analogy because Marnie Nixon died at the age of 86 earlier this week. And in her day, she was the voice and the song. She was the voice that you heard when Natalie Wood sang in West Side Story. But it, was, it wasn't Natalie Wood. It was Marnie Nixon. Never credited. Nobody ever really knew at the time. She's the voice of Deborah Carr in The King and I oh. with Yul Brynner. Because Deborah Carr couldn't sing. But she's great in that movie. Yeah. yeah. But she can't sing. That's Marnie Nixon. She was the voice of Audrey Hepburn in My Fair Lady. And Aubrey Hepburn did sing Moon River. In, in one movie, mm-hmm. but she also uh, sang the Cockney songs, the Rain in Spain, but she couldn't hit the good songs, the really the big songs when she learned to speak. And, and that's all Marnie Nixon. And I, I, rem- I think I remember that Marnie Nixon was paid something like $420 for The King and I. Oh, my god! And she was bullied by the producers to say, she had to sign a contract that said you could never reveal that this is, because they wanted big stars, everybody right. think the big stars were singing. Right. So they just kind of lied about it, and she signed a contract, never made any money. And then along come she, she was one of the nuns in The Sound of Music and actually sang. She's one of those nuns in the beginning of the movie. She filled in for, I want to say, I want to say she filled in for Marilyn Monroe in one of her musicals, just one song, helping her kind of hit the high notes. But, but she had this career of never being recognized, and all of a sudden Leonard Bernstein during West Side Story realized how important she was, and gave up some of his residual rights. So yeah. she she got the biggest payday of her life. Wow. And it was a smidgen compared to what he made. Right. Because he wrote, he's the, he's the right. composer. Um, uh, Sondheim wrote the lyrics. But gave some up to her, and it ch- kind of changed her life. And so she toured for a while. Well, because it yeah. completely makes the film. Yeah. You, oh. you, have to have that, you have to have that voice to to get to the emotional place. You have to have that voice to tell the story. If you're the director of West Side Story, um, if you're if you're Robert Wise, and Natalie Wood is battling you, saying, I can do it, I can do it, I can do it, and you get in there, and she can't. Well, and that's what's just so sad, because when, what year was West Side Story? West Side Story was, I want to say, 61. 60, uh, yeah. So I think The King and I was 56, 61, and probably 63 or 4 for, for the other one, for, for My, My Fair, Fair Lady. Yeah. Which that's, you know, that's not very long ago that, that studios still could control somebody's fate so, so yeah they yeah they did and you know since then i think unions have stepped in and really and really helped a lot of these actors and actresses get the residuals but but marnie wrote a book a number of years and she toured about it i've never met marnie nixon oh. 
I've always just admired her for so long. And every time I remember as a kid watching Natalie Wood sing I Feel Pretty in West Side Story, uh-huh. I thought, is that really her? <laughs> is that? I was 10 and I was thinking, is that really her? I don't think so. But they, they did it so well and they covered it so well that I, you know, I'm yeah. just, she was a voice actor. In a, in a singing world, but those are huge films. Right. Those are really, really big movies. Here's a little bit of uh, trivia. Her brother, his name was Andrew Gold, and Andrew, her brother, was a rock musician who arranged all the songs for Linda Ronstadt. Wow. Her brother. So they have a musical family, and he wrote the song, Thank You for Being a Friend. That was, wasn't that the theme for the Golden Girls? <laughs> Marty Nixon's son. Who son, d- brother. Son. Son. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wrote... Thank you for being a friend. It's That's a great. musical family. So, listen, I, I listen to those notes. I could I could never hit those notes in singing and that stuff. So I, well, you know, it's a, a good it's a good life loss or a sad life loss. But, uh, but it sounds like she still had a. It was a good impact. life lived. Yeah, 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 the great morning. There there were a couple of people that toured that I, I never got to see on stage. And one was Gregory Peck, touring with his uh, just about his life, and then Marnie Nixon talking about filling in for all those songs. Let's lighten it up a little bit. So it's hot outside. I want to drink something cool and crisp. I think I have an idea what you're going to say because I think I'm going to love it. Well, if you want something that's not quite as complicated as as our Riesling discussion. I do. I want something not as complicated. I will say, you know, obviously I'm completely on board with the Riesling now. Um, but something that maybe is just a good porch pounder or or a patio wine. It's it's still rosé season, and I, you know I we love to drink rosé all year. But summertime, hundred degrees outside, icy, icy cold. You know, throw that puppy in in the the most ice you can. Get it super cold. A res- or a rosé is so perfect right now, and we drink a lot of them. We love the rosés from Provence. That's kind of um, the the mecca of of great rosé made from Cinso and Grenache and Syrah. Um, one, a couple of our favorites that that I know you love is the Miraval. Um, I do. And then my my favorite's Domaine Ott. Um, but we also, you know, there's a great little rosé from the Languedoc region from Paul Moss called Cote, Mo- uh, Cote Moss. It's in a liter bottle. It's incredibly affordable. It's like $15 for a liter. Most bottles are 750 milliliters. And it's just a good, easy screw cap, p- picnic, patio, great little wine that that we love. But I'll also say I love a rosé of Pinot Noir. And, you know, Adelsheim's or Stoller's, both from Willamette Valley or Seneth from um, the Sonoma region. Theirs is actually a rosé of Cabernet Franc. And if you also do want a red wine in the summertime that has a slight chill on it, Cabernet Franc is the perfect variety to, to you know, put in your fridge for a little bit. Just really fresh and really, really delicious. We love these wines. A rosé is not a white Zinfandel. no. Well, I mean, white Zinfandel is 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 a light pink color, but um, but there's often a lot of residual sugar left in uh, white Zinfandel, whereas rosés, especially those from Provence, are are very very dry and and intended to be very dry. They'll still have fruit. You'll still have nice kind of fruit notes with with also the lovely herbs of Provence and and kind of those earthy mineral. Um, Garrigue kind of notes, 
but just not a lot of not a lot of residual sugar in there. And did you use the word porch pounder? I did. Yes, because <laughs> it's a hundred degrees in Texas. <laughs> also, three places I love to drink rosé on the beach in Hawaii. Mm. Uh, before we settle in for a good movie. Yeah. On the streets of Paris. Oh, a rosé. And then we just order. And then we just and then we just go. Can we go now? Yeah, let's go now. <laughs> hey, we probably better get out of here. That's it for Wine and Film, A Perfect Pairing. Now, next week, Will Smith, Margot Robbie, Viola Davis, Jared Leto star in a wild new comic book-inspired film. It's called Suicide Squad. Suicides. What am I going to pair with that? <laughs> okay. For more on the wines and films we talked about today, please check out our Perfect Pairing blog on our website and follow Gary on Twitter and at Gary Cogill and me on Instagram and Twitter at Dallas Uncorked. And with that, I'm Gary Cogill. And as usual, I'm looking for the next great film. And I'm Haley Hamilton Cogill, always in search of that great glass of wine. Join us next time on A Perfect Pairing.